This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and this week we're going to be looking at some big news regarding the cost of goods and services. We're also looking at rising stock markets and the journey to stopping work in your mid-50s. Joining me this week is Laura Souter. Hi there, Laura. Hello. So Dan and I will also be chatting about the latest inflation data for the US and the UK and what it means for your personal finances. And Tom Selby will be on the show to talk about the FIRE movement, which is a term to describe people who manage to retire early and have enough money to support their lifestyle. Now, a lot of people have found that they need to pay more tax than a year ago, and this could be causing a few headaches down the line for HMRC. Laura's got the full details on how the taxman is reportedly preparing to deal with a surge in calls. Now, she's also got some top tips if you're having to pay more tax. Later on, I'll take a look at some figures that show more people are struggling to repay their mortgage. But first up, Dan, can you give us an update on what's been happening on the markets over the past week? Yeah, there was one story that really caught my attention. Now, while it's not a listed company, it does have implications for companies that are on the stock market. And that was the acquisition of The Body Shop by Aurelius for £207 million. Now, Body Shop used to be worth a hell of a lot more than that. Um, I think if you go back to 2006, it was acquired by L'Oreal for £650 million. It was then sold to the Brazilian cosmetics group Natura for a billion euros in 2017. So fast forward a few years, and it's clearly worth a lot less. I think one of the key issues here is that in the last couple of years, lots of consumers have been trading down to more affordable retailers. So I think Body Shop's selling point was sustainability and ethical factors. And I think these are perhaps a bit less important to people at the moment compared to value for money and sort of lower price points. And Body Shop has been losing market share. Um, but to me, the reason this is interesting is because there's some messages coming from other parts of um, sort of the cosmetic industry, some good, some bad. Now, this week, Revolution Beauty said that life was getting a bit better, um, and it sort of highlighted really good performance across sales in Boots and Superdrug in the UK and Walmart in the US. Uh, Warpay is perhaps a company which I don't know if listeners may be that familiar with. They do the W7 um, cosmetics range, and they tend to sell really sort of low-priced products. Lots of them are available in supermarkets, and they have been coming out saying things are doing fantastically as well. The share price is at now at an all-time high. Um, I spoke with the, the boss of Warpaint during the summer, and he was saying that just anecdotally, they've been going around a few sort of um, few of the different supermarkets, and they'd see their sort of display case with their products in it, and they'd find that they'd see other, other more expensive brands like Maybelline in there. And they sort of were coming to the conclusion that perhaps people picked up a more expensive lipstick or, or something like that. And actually, then, then, then seen stuff that was much cheaper, i.e. the wall paint range. And they dropped, just, you know, disposed the product and picked up the cheaper one. So I, I thought this is quite interesting. I mean, Laura, you, 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 you buy a lot more makeup than I do. <laughs> What what you know? <laughs> what, what sort of trends are you seeing when you're buying stuff, and, it, and is price point really important to you at the moment? 
I think so. And I think I've definitely traded down in products a bit like everyone has done really when you think about the supermarket shop lots more people are buying own brands and I think now I'm definitely sacrificing some of the spendier products I used to have in favor of some cheaper options or at least trialing out cheaper options and seeing if they're as good so I think you know we're actually getting some sort of mixed messages from companies I think anyone who's in the, the value end is doing quite well some of these more sort of luxury goods companies, and this is beyond cosmetics, this includes sort of clothes and watches as well. Here, I think that there's lots of people thinking this this part of the sort of the, the world was invincible. You know, their customers were so rich that they wouldn't be affected by inflation or the cost of living crisis. But I think that that's perhaps not completely sort of standing up when, when sort of um, being judged by the messages from companies. Now, names like Estee Lauder that have, have reported a slowdown in growth. Earlier this year, Ralph Lauren did the same. Um, and so we had results the other day from the watch and jewellery retailer, Richemont, and again saying that you know, things were a bit disappointing there. So it is quite um, you know, clear from sort of the, these trends that um, price points really are very important to people at the moment. And, and whilst we're going to be talking a little bit about um, the future direction of interest rates a bit later in the podcast, uh, you know, at the moment, you know, price is definitely high up on that agenda. So I also just wanted a quick, quick sort of um, observation about some of the property companies on the stock market this week. Now, British Land, which is one of the big companies that owns retail parks and offices in the UK, um, it said that first half earnings had increased, rental growth was good, and it had high levels of occupancy. But I think if you if you follow this area. Property um, stocks are having a really, really tough time. I think people are worried about what's happening since COVID. You know, lots more people are working from home. Lots of companies are saying that perhaps they don't need as much office space as they, they previously did. Um, and so everyone's assuming it's doom and gloom in the commercial property sector. But we're actually seeing quite a lot of these companies sell assets for, for way more than the values recorded uh, in their accounts, or certainly the, the values being attributed by the stock market to their assets. Um, and it would definitely suggest that things aren't as bad as some people think. But um, I, I think, Laura, just the, the, the big story to me has been the, the sort of news on US inflation figures, which came in below expectations. And it's, this sort of triggered a really big rally in stock markets around the world. So US inflation had fallen to 3.2% in October. Um, Treasury yields fell sharply on this news. Stocks rallied. So if you think that central banks are sort of hopefully want to see inflation down to 2% over time, um, and if the US is at 3.2%, people are now sort of suggesting, well, you know, they definitely don't need to raise rates anymore, or certainly that's the argument. Of course, that's why people are sort of rediscovering their love for equities again, and the stock market's actually been doing quite well in the last sort of few days. You know, Names like, you know, I was talking about British Land earlier, it's done very well. Um, Carnival, Weatherspoon, they've all done you know, fantastically over the last sort of few days. And in, in an American market, names like Tesla and Airbnb are also doing very well. But it's not just the US that's seeing positive news on inflation. So, Laura, t- tell us what's been happening in the UK as well. Yeah, so we had a big drop in the inflation figure um, in the latest reading. And so it has dropped from 6.7% down to 4.6% in October. And that's actually slightly below where analysts and 
all of the market commentators were expecting it to be. We were expecting a chunky drop, but not quite as big as that. Um, it's good news for Rishi Sunak because he pledged to halve inflation by the end of the year, and this reading means that he has met that. Um, that's quite crucial, I think, going into um, the autumn statement next week because his claim was that we couldn't hand out any tax cuts or any forms of giveaway to the public until he'd halved that inflation figure. Um, so that's quite an important metric for us to have reached. I mean, I could probably debate for about an hour about whether it's really valid that the government sets a target which it doesn't really have much control over. But regardless, they will be pleased that we've reached it. But while this drop is good, we've got to bear in mind that the Bank of England's target for inflation is 2%. So we're still significantly above that. And this drop in inflation doesn't actually mean that prices are falling. We're still seeing a significant rise in price in prices. And once you dig below, below that kind of headline figure, you get some eye-opening things. So food inflation is still around 10%. And when we add together all of those inflation figures over the past couple of years, we can see that food prices have risen dramatically during that time and are still rising. So good headline figure, good news story for the government, um, and good that it's heading in the right direction. But still, there's a long way to go. And particularly when we think about those food costs, which so many people rely on. So Tom Selby is back on the show with his regular Pensions Corner. And this week, we're going to be talking about something I think lots of listeners would love to do. And that's the idea of retiring early. Mm. And so Tom, there's this sort of phrase that people use called FIRE. Um, financial independence, retire early. Uh, you know, I think it's. It, you know, I think everyone would love to be able to to stop work early and live their life. But what's the sort of the pros and cons if you're going to try and achieve this sort of lifestyle? Is it is it possible to retire at fifty five and then make sure your money doesn't run out? So stopping, as you say, stopping work as early as possible remains a goal for lots of people. Um, if you aren't super wealthy, then early retirement will usually require some quite serious saving while you're young um, and an ultra frugal lifestyle while you're retired. And it'll probably require a little bit of both. So for starters, you mentioned age 55. That's obviously the earliest age at which someone can access their pension in the UK. It rises to 57 in 2028. You can't usually access your pension before age 55. So if you're planning to retire really early, and that's what people in the FIRE movement often advocate, it is possible, but you'd need non-pension assets to sustain you. So potentially ISAs or buy-to-let property to support your lifestyle until you can access your retirement pot. Now, you also need to think about the availability or lack thereof of the state pension. So that's a valuable source of retirement income for most people when it kicks in. But at the moment, the state pension age is 66. So there'll be a gap between you retiring and you receiving the state pension. Now, that state pension age is due to rise to 67 by 2028 and 68 by 2046. So you're potentially talking about 10, 15 years where you'd need to find an extra roughly £10,600. That's the value of the state pension in 2023. You need to find that income from your own 
sources. So that's a bit of the background. In terms of the pros and cons of early retirement, well, you mentioned the pro, really. The obvious pro is you have more time to relax and do the things that you enjoy doing. Um, But for lots of people, that single outcome is worth huge amounts of sacrifice. And again, we go back to this fire movement. So if you've paid off your mortgage and expect lower living costs when you stop working, then early retirement will be more achievable. But if you want to retire early and you've got you've got a really lavish lifestyle plan, so you want to travel and eat out with fancy restaurants or generally have an active and potentially expensive lifestyle, you'll need to build a substantial pot of money to do that. So it is possible using tax incentivized vehicles like pensions and ISAs to help you get along the way, but you'll likely have to sacrifice significant amounts of your lifestyle when you're younger in order to achieve that goal. Are we, so are we talking... You'd need a pension pot in more than a million pounds here, rather than. It depends on your lifestyle, and it depends on your investment returns, and that's why actually this is all, all often very, very difficult. So if your lifestyle is really frugal and you get really good investment returns, then it might be actually a, a more moderate pension pot will help you achieve that goal. But if the opposite is true, so you want to do lots of things and perhaps your investments don't perform, then you may be talking about a, a pension pot of a million pounds or even beyond that. It obviously depends on things like your mortgage costs as well. So if you've still got a mortgage to pay off, if you've still got kids who are going to university who need money as well, then those costs are going to weigh on you as well. And if that's all coming out of your pension, then you're going to need a really, really big pot to last you that amount of time. And that that sustainability point is a key one as well. So it's a really obvious point, but the earlier you start accessing your pension, the longer it's going to need to last for. So you're going to need to think about the income that you take from your pension and the investment risk you're taking as well. You might also miss out on some tax-free investment growth. So if you retire at 55 and start accessing your pension rather than leaving it until 65 and beyond, then that's 10 years potentially of investment growth that you'd be able to enjoy that you might be dampening down or missing out on altogether. Um, So if you've got your eyes on early retirement, and lots of people do, I think The key thing is to make sure you've sat down, as always, ideally with a regulated financial advisor, if you can afford to to, to pay for one, and and thought realistically about your spending plans and the impact retiring early will have on those plans. I think the the FIRE movement is, lots of people seem to write about it. There's certainly lots of people blogging or sharing their experiences. Mm. I mean, I don't know, Tom, just from your, your, whether you've read all these things, are these people telling the truth? Have they really achieved it? Or do they sort of making up that they live this lifestyle, but they don't? Well, I think a lot of people, in in my experience reading articles about the fire movement, I think a lot of people who advocate it are, are aiming for that. So quite often it's younger people who say they'll be able to achieve this, perhaps say they'll be able to live off very high investment returns or very high dividends off their investments, but they might only be in their 40s, mid-40s. They may have only just started trying to do that. So in reality, how a strategy like that is going to work probably won't be clear until the fullness of time. So it might be that somebody who starts living a certain lifestyle, say when they're 45 or 50, perhaps in anticipation that they'll only need their pension to last until 80, reaches their 80th birthday and is in really good health and finds that the money's run out. And you may have another 10, 15, 20 years of life to live. You may have care costs coming down the track as well. Um, So in my experience, it's a reasonably new phenomenon, mainly young people advocating it. For some, it will be perfectly successful and it'll work. But my worry is that for others, it won't. And they won't think about that sustainability point in particular when coming up with their their strategy. 
I think it'd be quite interesting if anyone's listening to this podcast and you're in this situation and you've achieved it, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Hey, Tom, thanks so much for coming on. This is re- really interesting stuff. I'm sure we'll return to this topic in, in future episodes. Thanks, Dan. So shall we talk about my favourite topic now, Dan? Tax. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, because I did see some reports that HMRC is sort of quivering uh, in terms of what might be coming its way in terms of like you know, lots more people paying tax. What does that mean for its um, the people who are manning its phones and uh, answering all the customer service emails? Yeah, it's not a great news story for HMRC. So effectively, um, a lot of the changes that the government have made mean that more people are going to become taxpayers or they're going to be paying more tax or different taxes for the first time. So some of this is down to the fact that the government froze um, the income tax bans, as we know, and we've talked about a lot previously. That means that more people will be pushed into the next tax bracket, which will have an impact on other areas of their taxes as well. But at the same time, the government has massively slashed the amount that people um, can earn in dividends or capital gains before they pay tax each year. And that means more of those people are going to have to file self-assessment tax returns because they've got earnings um, in those particular areas over the tax-free limit. Um, At the same time, we also have a lot of people earning a decent amount on their savings now, and that means that they're breaching what's called the personal savings allowance, which is the amount that you can earn um, tax-free from your savings interest. So all of these things mean that there's far more demand on HMRC. You've got lots more people approaching them with queries or having received letters from HMRC saying they owe money and calling up to find out why. You've also got lots more people filing a self-assessment tax return and quite often for the first time and they need more hand-holding through that. But HMRC hasn't been given any additional resources to deal with this influx of taxpayers. Um, You might remember us talking in the summer about how HMRC decided to shut down its phone lines for self-assessment customers. Um, This was in a bid to kind of try and solve some of the trickier queries that it was seeing elsewhere and redirect people from those phone lines, um, redirect its staff from those phone lines to help deal with problems elsewhere. What it seems to have done is create now a backlog in those queries from people who want to call up and speak to someone. HMRC says that it can deal with a lot of this online. Lots of people can be helped out by various chatbots or um, how-to guides on the website, but it still remains that lots of people need to speak to HMRC and without additional people on the end of the phone lines, they're finding it very frustrating to get through. And we've even seen celebrities take to Twitter to complain about the length of time they've been waiting on hold with HMRC, which is not something the boss of HMRC will want to see. No, definitely. So, I mean, if if any of our listeners are in this sort of situation where they're now having to pay a bit more tax, are there any sort of real key sort of tips you can give to people to um, how to deal with this and or anything they can do to perhaps... Uh, avoid paying more tax than they really need to? So I think it's really a case of firstly being aware of what taxes you might be having to pay and be aware of the implications of a lot of these tax changes from the government. Um, So whether that's a frozen band um, coupled with a pay rise mean you're pushing into the next tax bracket or whether that's realising that your dividend income, for example, is now going to be subject to tax. So I think it's really kind of 
getting clued up on some of the tax changes that might mean you need to pay more tax or file a self-assessment tax return um, and being aware of that because it's much easier for you to fill that out and um, kind of proactively get ahead of it rather than HMRC contacting you. Um, The next thing I would say is that there is a lot of information online, a lot of guides, a lot of um, helpful things from HMRC on how to fill out a self-assessment tax return or the instances where you might need to or might not need to. Um, Obviously, that is HMRC's line as well, but it is true. They do have a lot of guides and a lot more help for people and chatbots that can answer simple inquiries. Um, And then the next thing is to get ahead of the self-assessment deadline. And so the closer we get to that deadline, the more people are going to have to call up and query and put in questions to HMRC. And we're going to see those waits on the phone lines get even longer, I would suspect. So if you can file your tax, your self-assessment tax return earlier, get any questions resolved now, I think that will be a much less painful process than if you leave it right up to the deadline in January. Now, before we bring on our next guest, Laura, I just wanted to ask you about mortgage arrears. As I think new data sort of implying quite a few people, landlords and homeowners, are sort of feeling pain from the sharp rise in interest rates. Um, and, and is it a simple case that you know there, there is inevitably a group of people who just simply cannot stomach all these extra costs of borrowing? Yeah, exactly. And we've seen that big increase in what's called mortgage arrears, so people who are behind on their mortgage. Um, the latest figures from UK Finance showed that in the third quarter of this year, um, the number of people in mortgage arrears had risen by almost 20% when we compared it to last year. Now, the good news is that it's still very low by historical standards. So, for example, after the financial crisis in kind of 2009, we saw mortgage arrears far higher than they are now. So they've certainly not reached that level, but they definitely are ticking up. And what I also found interesting is that UK finance only classifies a homeowner as being behind on their mortgage if they owe more than two and a half percent of the mortgage value in arrears. So for example, on a £400,000 mortgage, that would mean someone would have to be behind on their payments by £10,000 before they were classed as in arrears. So actually, there's going to be a far greater number of people who've missed a couple of payments but haven't quite met that threshold yet to be classed as in arrears. And we'll probably see some of those come through the system um, in the coming months. Um, One thing that I think is helping is the mortgage charter. So this is something that lots of mortgage companies signed up to. um, And it's offering additional support to customers who are coming to remortgage and finding that they can't afford it. And it's offering a lot of temporary measures. So it's things like allowing them to pay interest only for a while or extending their term. Lots of these are temporary though. And so I think what we're also seeing is these arrears figures are not going up so dramatically because lots of people are being covered by this mortgage charter at the moment. But lots of those um, solutions only last for six months. So I would expect that then at that point, those people probably aren't magically going to be able to afford their mortgage on the higher rates at that point, and they will start to fall into arrears too. So a small uptick for now, but I expect a much bigger uptick next year until the Bank of England starts cutting interest rates. Thanks, Laura. So let's shift our attention back to equity markets as we've got an excellent guest to finish up this week's podcast. 
Kumar Pandit is the co-manager of the Somerset Emerging Market Dividend Growth Fund. And while this investment product can invest across emerging markets, he's got a keen interest in India, which is the focus of our interview today. So Dan recently met up with Kumar to find out more about investing in this part of the world. So Kumar, India's been a fairly decent place to put your money in recent years. If you look at the BSE Sensec Index, it's doing better than the S&P 500 index over the last five years in local currency terms. So what's the sort of been the general driver for sort of this good performance from India? Sure, you're absolutely right. Uh, From my perspective, there are a few reasons why I think the Indian stock market has done well. And really, that's because primarily there has been a strong level of corporate earnings growth, and that's been in a politically stable environment which itself has fostered pro-economic policy. So over the past five years to the end of 2022, earnings for Sensex-listed companies have compounded about 15% in rupee terms, slightly below that in pound sterling terms. And then on top of that, there's been broad domestic political stability, and that's with Modi running the country now since 2014. And as I said, that in turn has facilitated pro-economic reforms, so things like the introduction of a goods and services tax, that's helped to lift tax collections. Other things which are slightly more controversial, but nonetheless interesting, such as demonetization, and that was the removal and replacement of some of the highest denominated banknotes, which helped to curtail the shadow economy and actually increase the level of cashless transactions. So from my perspective, these are all reasons for good stock returns in India. So As you say, it's been a great place to put one's money. One pound invested in the Sensex at the beginning of this year has generated higher returns than the SP 500. And that's in local currency terms, but also not too far off in pound sterling terms. And over the past five years, that's been around 11% annualized. I think that's pretty attractive for not only UK-based investors faced with high inflation, uh, who are aiming to obtain real returns on investments, but actually global investors. So obviously, you know, the, the stock market's done very well in India, but at the moment, valuations look a little, you know, kind of look a bit rich. Is that are valuations always expensive here? Um, and and or if not, is it perhaps now the time to to look somewhere else to get sort of cheaper um, exposure to you know perhaps Asia or or emerging markets on a broader basis? Sure. So. It's interesting. Actually, valuations for the market have actually derated compared to history, and they're trading at around 22 times price to earnings for this year. It's actually around the cheapest it's traded for around five years. But obviously, that does coincide with rising global interest rates. But the point being is that one has to take that into context with things like earnings growth. So agreed that headline valuations aren't that cheap. The Sensex itself, as I said, trades on around 22 times earnings, and that's for around 18% earnings growth this year. So, you know, that's about 1.2 times price to earnings growth ratio. But I think it looks more interesting when you compare it to the S&P, for example, that's trading on a slightly higher PE multiple, but with much lower earnings growth. However, as you said, you know, why bother with you know, India current valuations? Is it quite expensive to other emerging markets? You know, Aside from the points that I mentioned about political stability, et cetera, what I would say about India is that it's, it's my view that 
the job of active fund managers like myself, we're there to seek out investment opportunities. So you know, while market valuations are certainly more expensive than some of the other emerging markets, you know, what I would say is that there are also more than 800 stocks listed in India with sufficient liquidity of around a million dollars a day. So within this list of companies, fundamental bottom-up research-oriented active fund managers certainly should be able to find some interesting investment ideas at the very least. So you know, while one could be underweight India relative to the Emerging Markets Index, as I am in the Dividend Growth Fund, I don't believe there's a particular reason not to hold any Indian investments. But corruption is a bit of an issue in the country. Is that a sort of a concern when you're looking for investment opportunities in India? Yeah, I mean, I would say actually corruption is just an issue in many countries. You know, that's both developed and developing. I was reading some interesting data a few weeks ago written by Transparency International. And in that, Uruguay ranked better than the US and the UK in its corruptions perception index. So I thought that was quite fascinating. But I agree. You know, India absolutely does rank lower than other Asian countries in corruption uh, and particularly against China or South Korea. But from my perspective, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a concern or prohibiting for investing, but that's mainly because of the type of companies that I favor. And, and these are more established businesses which have a longer history of trading as a publicly listed company. So that way I can look back at annual reports. I like to assess whether there have been any corporate governance or accounting red flags uh, or any other similar issues and basically ascertain whether the company owners have actually delivered on their targets over the years. I also aim to meet with and speak with all management of the companies which I invest in. And I'd say underscoring that, I like businesses which have clean balance sheets. So historically, one of the most common issues and causes of Indian corporate governance irregularities has just been linked to how companies have needed funding and have raised debt and presented their accounts. And we've seen that more recently with the Adani Group, and, but even historically with companies like Satyam or even Kingfisher. So, I mean, if you if you look at China this year, um, it's it's been very disappointing for investors. I was wondering, do you think that that might actually make people look more at India as an alternative way of getting Asian exposure? In short, yes. But what I would say is that if we just take a step back and look holistically at the emerging markets or, or, or at Asia, yeah, the reasons that I mentioned about the attractiveness for India, I think, are still very interesting. And within that context, particularly with the relatively weaker economic growth in China, alongside geopolitical tensions, you know, not to mention domestic regulatory headwinds that we've seen in recent years. It's true, investors have preferred Indian equities. But what I would say is that could shift very quickly. We saw that at the end of 2022 when you know, the Chinese exited COVID. There was actually a huge shift of fund flows from a relatively more expensive market that had performed well in India to one that was actually the opposite in China. So, I'd say yes, absolutely, that is, is one of the reasons. But also outside of India, as an emerging markets investor looking globally, but in Asia, 
There are other interesting markets such as Taiwan, for example, and that's returned an annualized 10% in sterling terms over the past five years. But I think if you if you sort of compare India with China, it, does India have a sort of competitive advantage at all? Um, because I know obviously people look to these countries for um, sort of cheap labor uh, for, for both of them, but is it is a place where India really does stand out? I'd say there are a few reasons, actually. So overarchingly, there is just a phenomenally long runway of economic growth. So to put that into context, if the Chinese economy stopped growing today and Indian GDP grew at 10% a year, it would take the best part of almost two decades for Indian GDP to reach that of China. So the Chinese economy is about $18 trillion. It's the second largest in the world, roughly a quarter smaller than that of the US. You know, I don't doubt there's still growth ahead, but you know, clearly I question if it can continue at the same pace as it has done historically, or even at the pace of India. And that's purely because of the sheer size. You know, conservatively speaking, the Indian economy should grow at an average of 3.5% quicker than that of China over the next two decades. And then within that, you know, there are just various pockets of lots of potential growth. So, for example, mortgage penetration is just 10% in India. You compare that to 30% in China. And then I just add a little bit in saying that you know, I talked a bit about the geopolitical perspective. India is clearly well positioned. And I think that stable geopolitical footing is also just resulting in a number of international companies just looking to increase their supply chain diversification and using India either as a manufacturing hub or just increasing imports from India itself. And, and then you mentioned about the, the labor. So as we know, India now has become the most populous country in the world. Labor costs there are cheaper than in China, and the quality of both manufacturing and services is high. You know, that's all facilitated by a young and growing labor force. So the potential labor force is forecast to increase by just about a percent a year over the next 30 years, while in China it's declining. But actually what I think is more interesting is that the labor force participation rate, it's only around 50% in India, it's 75% in China. So you know, there's a long room uh, and long potential for growth there. And that's in an environment where the rate of unemployment is at a 12-year low in India, around 4%. That's Kumar Pandit from the Somerset Emerging Market Dividend Growth Fund. Next week's show is going to be a special on the autumn statement and everything that it means for your money. We've got Dan and Danny and a guest appearance from Charlene Young, who is our pensions and savings expert, who will be analysing everything that's announced and letting you know how it will impact your finances. So definitely listen. But until then, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.